0: Hey my name is Jay Warner Wallace and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know that you're in a good place. And I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one radio? Is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there. This is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio? And I'm now passing the baton off to my man Veda. Hey
1: everybody, how you doing? I am your host, Veda Hedgman of Is He a Real One Radio? And we are here tonight with a very, very special guest on this episode. Where is my book? So,
0: (laughs) it's at your bedside. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right, y'all. So look. So we have uh, you know, we have Dr. Peter Gurry. You know, he is one of the authors and editors of this excellent book right here, Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. So we will be discussing many of the things that that Christian apologists and scholars have overstated or maybe have said things and it should have been qualified more clearly, or some things were straight out wrong. We're going to have a conversation about some of that. So we would just want to welcome all of you all. If you're listening on iHeartRadio, we want to thank you so much for listening. If you listen on Spotify, iTunes, or TuneIn app, we want to thank you. If you're watching and listening on YouTube, we want to say hello and thank you for looking at us. And Dr. Peter Gurry, before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Sure. So my name is uh, Dr. Peter Gurry, and I am an assistant professor of New Testament at Phoenix Seminary here in Arizona. Uh, and then I also co-direct uh, our new Text and Canon Institute there. And that's only about a year old, but we've got a lot of exciting things happening there as well. Um, I'm a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and then Dallas Seminary, and I did my PhD work at the University of Cambridge. And then, uh, let's see, lived here in Arizona for about three years. We have five kids and one cat you may <laughs> see, you may see it's possible i don't see her in here but she may stop
1: by my <laughs> might pop by make my <laughs> pop have a cameo you know we she, see she
0: has before so
1: right <laughs> now for those who have been long time is here ruin radio listeners you would know that i have an episode where i did a presentation on the new on the historical reliability of the New Testament. Dr. Peter Gurry is going to tell us why 80% of what I said in that video was wrong. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 Actually, thankfully now there there are some things that we'll touch on it. Mostly the Latin manuscripts thing Yeah. as as far as the stuff that I would correct if I were to do that presentation again. But thankfully I was trained by the great Dr. Daniel Wallace, whom I know you've been trained. Well, I won't say trained. I took a class from him, you know, but, you know, but, you know, but that did help. So, So some of the things that are, you know, that are, explained you know in that video were more up to date than than some others but if you're listening to this I do encourage you to hit pause if you've never seen that presentation because some of the things that Dr. Gurry and I are going to be discussing is going to presume and assume an understanding of certain communications and studies as it relates to the historic reliability of the New Testament and manuscripts and and other external evidences as well. So with that said, before I get into any questions, uh, Dr. Peter Gurry, can you let us know why this conversation and the information that is in the book is even important? Like, why is this even important for us to read about and or talk about?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think starting kind of broadly, when it comes to textual criticism, which is the question of, you know, can we can we get to the original wording of the New Testament authors, it's it's really a foundational question because if you don't know what the New Testament authors are claiming, then it it doesn't doesn't matter if what they claim is right or wrong because you don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. So we have to know what the New Testament authors are saying before we can even ask the the second question, which is is what they say true, right? And can we trust it? So in many ways, textual criticism is not the entire, certainly not the entire apologetic issue right for people right. who have questions about the bible but it often is the foundational one and sometimes it's the first one that people encounter At other times it's one of the later ones people encounter they're dealing with other other questions like the resurrection of jesus and then they later discover that this book they've been depending on Uh, has lots of variants in the manuscripts and can they even bother with it anymore if they don't Mm. know what it says. So in that way, it's, it's very much a, sometimes I've heard it called a pre-apologetic issue or a pre-evangelistic issue in that uh, if you can't, if you can't nail this question down, then whatever you say after that doesn't matter one way or the other. So,
1: okay. So I'll just start off with some of the foundational things that we often hear repeated. Right. So, I'll start off with some of the with some of the variants. So, mm-hmm. for those who are listening, again, I won't always qualify things like this in this depth because, again, our conversation is assuming a certain level of understanding and familiarity with certain Christian apologetic teachings, or even you know people who aren't Christian apologists like Bart Ehrman. There's a certain familiarity that that we are assuming as we're having this conversation. But let's talk a little bit about variants. So, so. Later on, we'll talk a little bit about certain manuscripts, fragments that we have that do exist. It is is in the thousands. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about that number. But I kind of want to start off with the variant discussion. So so variants do exist. They range between the 400 and 500,000 number, maybe even more. That is a lot. Now, when... Christian scholars discuss this and we say, yes, we have all these manuscripts and we can look at all of these different languages that's talking about the New Testament and it is copy. It is copying the original writings. and We have all of these thousands of copies. And yes, there are 400, 500,000, maybe even more variants, but many of those variants are meaningless. When we say that as teachers, is that sometimes overstated? Can that be qualified more or better?
0: Um, I, well, if you're starting with you know, five hundred thousand variants, you're you're doing good because that's probably the, in my opinion, that's the best estimate we have. Now I'm a little bit biased because that's my own estimate, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did I, I did put a lot of work into trying to make sure that estimate was was based on something meaningful. Right, right. Whereas most other estimates, they're just kind of thrown around and there's no no explanation given for why. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so so we can start there and say, yes, there are a lot of variants in our manuscripts. And then it's a question of why are there so many? Like, one question that comes up is, are there so many because Christian scribes were particularly bad? And if that's the case, then does that say something about whether we can get back to the original text or not? Hmm. Um, and then there's questions like, okay, given the number of variants that there are, how many of them really matter? you know, for something like interpretation or translation. And I think we can answer both those questions. In the in the case of the first question, I think we can say that Christian scribes were about as good as their uh, secular counterparts. So they <clears throat> made the same types of mistakes in general. Um, they also tried to correct their manuscripts when they could, just like their secular counterparts. And as a rule, they um, they copied New Testament manuscripts because they valued them, right? They right. valued the New Testament documents. And that's that's why they copied them. And that's, that's why we have so many, we have thousands and thousands of Greek and Testament manuscripts because people valued them, right? They wanted to have copies of the scriptures. Um, And then I think we can ask the, the, the larger question, uh, which is does the, does the fact of all these variants mean that we're just lost in a sea of them and we can't get back to the original. And the answer to that I'm convinced is no. Um, the number of variants does sometimes mean it's a lot of work for scholars who work on this. Okay. Um, so, so folks like me who who are interested in knowing as much data as we possibly can when we're trying to, to study the history of the text and how it was copied over time and, and all that, but when it comes to something like um, the number of variants that really are hard to resolve and affect translation, you're, you're in the range of something like one to three percent of the total estimated number, right? Mm. Um, so, and if people want to know where these are, the simplest way is to start paying attention to the footnotes in your English Bibles, um, because most, maybe not all, but most of the difficult variants are right there in the footnotes. Uh, if it affects translation, a good English Bible translation will usually note it at the bottom of the page so it's not like it's hidden from you it's not like there's a conspiracy of silence to try to hide these from from english bible readers right there, right
1: there. I, I actually want to jump in a little bit right there and for those who aren't as familiar with flipping the pages you know i, I i've only been a believer for about you know eight eight years but i still yeah. like flipping pages you know but <laughs> but you know but if but if you're one of those folks who only look at the bible on your computer or on your phone there's also still a little footnote that might be next to the verse that you're reading. And maybe you've never clicked on it, you know, but it might have a little bracket and it might have a little a in there or something like that. If you click on it, oftentimes it'll say earliest manuscripts that we have don't have this verse or some scholars disagree on when this was added or something to that effect. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, so most of the the most significant variants in the new Testament you will find a footnote for them in your English Bible. Um, so let me give it just one example uh, that's an important one <clears throat> that's also difficult to resolve, and that is Jesus' prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In, okay. In, toward the end of Luke's gospel. Um, that's one where you'll find a footnote saying or, some early and important manuscripts do not have this, this prayer, right? Mm. These, these words. Uh, and that's the one that, that textual scholars continue to discuss and study and debate and i'm somewhat torn myself on that one uh there are good scholars who who disagree with me on either side think either that it is original or that it's not but clearly that's that's a that's a kind of variant that does matter to people should matter yeah. to us i think as christians for sure um but that is difficult to resolve and and the reality is you know that's that's by far the exception not the rule so you know, you can read most of Luke's gospel and there's no variance of that significance or that difficulty. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, now I I know there are a couple others, even the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, verse one, you know, where it's specifying that, you know, Jesus is God. But I want to go back to the Luke example that you just mentioned. So let's say that that is not in the original letter that Luke drafted. How does that impact the Christian faith?
0: Right, so that's a good a good question. Um, I think that's a good question because it, it provides some perspective on this question, and it's and I think sometimes people can get get have a feeling that if there's any uncertainty at all in the text of their Bible, then then maybe the whole Christian faith is, is in doubt, right? <laughs> right, think, it just
1: blows up. Yeah, right. it
0: just blows up, and I think it's a that's a pretty un, unhealthy view, and a and certainly not a necessary one. Um, so that, so let's, let's look at that example of Jesus's prayer from the cross. What do we lose if that's not original? Well, do we lose Jesus's teaching that we should love our enemies and pray for them? And the answer is no, absolutely not. We have clear teaching of that exact same, that exact same point elsewhere. So you could look in the Sermon on the Mount say in, in Matthew's gospel, if you want to stay within Luke's writing, you could look at, um, the example of Stephen when he's martyred and he prays a very similar prayer, mm-hmm. um, when he's being stoned that, that, that God would forgive those who are putting him, who, who are killing him, right? So it's very clear from from Jesus' other teaching in the Gospels that Jesus does teach us to love our enemies, that he teaches us to pray for those who persecute us. And that's exemplified in, in people like Stephen, right, in his example. So I don't think we actually lose any ethical teaching of Jesus if, those, if that part of that verse is not original. Mm-hmm. I think what we do lose, though, is a very powerful example of that. Right. And we lose a very powerful example of that teaching on the lips of Jesus at the very moment where he is dying for those who are crucifying him. Right. So I I don't want to say it doesn't matter because it does matter. It matters to me personally. I mean, I want to know if if Jesus prayed that and it's significant to me if he did. Very significant. Um, But it's not like if I just if, if I come to the conclusion, the evidence points me to the conclusion that he didn't pray that that all of a sudden, well, I guess I don't have to love my enemies anymore.
1: Right. <laughs> right 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 <laughs> like, sorry that's that's not an option right Man, i've been wait. i've been waiting to, know, i've been waiting to tell y'all how i feel <laughs> <laughs> i think
0: there's some Christians maybe who are like hoping it's not think, right but no sorry like jesus teaching to love our enemies is is there and profound and true uh whether that's original or not
1: yeah now, you somewhat touched on my next question, but I kind of want to hit on it more specifically as far as what would you say to someone that says, well, I know Vader told me to watch his other video first, but I didn't. And I'm listening to it, <laughs> but I'm listening to this. Yeah. And based on what they're saying, I already heard them talk about variants in a bunch of different manuscripts. I already heard them talk about two verses that may not even be in the original letter. I feel like I can't even know what the original text said. Mm -hmm. I I can't even know what the Bible says. What would you say to that person?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So that's kind of like an an absolutist view. Like if I have one doubt about the Bible, then the whole thing must be in doubt. And I think to just start with, you could just kind of think through that and ask yourself maybe kind of one way to say it is to doubt your own doubts and ask yourself if your own doubts are really reasonable or not. I think mean, it's pretty unreasonable to think that just because there's one point at which there's a problem, that that means every point there must be a problem. Um, but I do find that people often get that feeling when they first learn about text criticism, because most people have a pretty simple view of the Bible. that Well, it's just, I shouldn't say most people, but some people do, and I include myself when I was younger, too. Um, you know, the Bible kind of came down from heaven and what we have in my English Bible, that's the Bible, right? And that's <laughs> right. all we know. Right. And, and the more you study, the more you realize, well, no, the Bible has a history. It's been copied. It's been transmitted. It's been translated in the case of English and other, other modern languages. Um, so, and then, and then, so that's kind of where I'd start with them and say, hey, just slow down and think about this for a minute, okay? Think about whether this is really a reasonable way to be thinking, okay? And then the second thing is I'd want to do is spend some time with them, walking them through how text criticism works and and really how well it works in most cases uh and the reason why their bibles their english bibles are not full of footnotes about you know some manuscripts say is because text criticism works really well for the most part right Right. there are difficult cases of course which is why i have a job but um but but for the most part it it works very well and the, the basic principle is when you're dealing with variants you ask yourself if let's say i have two differences two readings okay which one best explains the other one, okay? And in the majority of cases, that question has a pretty clear answer, right? So the reason why our our Bibles aren't filled with footnotes about manuscript variants is because in most cases, it's very straightforward to resolve the differences between our manuscripts. In some cases, in fact, in a large number of cases, it's because the variant is found in one, two, maybe three manuscripts. And especially if they're later manuscripts, the likelihood that they preserve the original text all by themselves is very slight. Right. So, you know, a huge number of variants are things like uh, simple nonsense readings. Uh, the equivalent of when I'm typing an email and I mean to say the T H E and I misspell it and it's comes out T E H. Right. It's the kind of thing the person I'm writing the email to knows exactly what I meant to type. Right. They can, they can fix my error without even having reference to another email of mine. Right? Uh-huh. Same thing with manuscripts. There are times where we can see a clear, Nonsensical reading in a manuscript, and we it's clear to us what the scribe meant to write He, he just got mixed up right um, in other cases it's it's a sensible variant, but it's just again very clear how it how it came about because we're we have one one of the positive things that people should understand is because we have so many variants, that gives us a lot of material to study how things can go wrong, yeah. And so actually, the more evidence you have of how things and when things go wrong in a manuscript, the better equipped we are then in those difficult cases to know the most likely solution to it. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. That's actually the point that I was going to make when you finished your soliloquy. I was going to say, isn't it a good thing? that we can even examine it to this depth, to be this critical, and say, well, I don't know about this verse, or this verse here, I'm pretty confident that this one actually isn't in the original, because I have all of this, so it can sound intimidating if we are being lazy, I'll just be frank with you, if we're just being lazy, and we just hear or read a couple quick bullet points without giving it the proper context. Preferably, preferably we aren't reading our Bible that way as well, you know, because we actually have to read it in depth and in its context as well, right? You know, but also when we're looking at the evidence and the historical context about how Scripture has made it to 2020, you know, it's actually a good thing that we can be this critical about so many books in the Bible, you know, because... the Go worst
0: ahead. situation we could be in is one where we know um, the text was changed, but we have no way of knowing what it was changed from. Mm. In fact, because we have so many manuscripts, I, in my opinion, it's very unlikely or very rare at least that the original text of the new Testament at least has been lost. There may be some instances, but they're pretty rare if if they occur at all. Um, and so Uh and and that's somewhat unlike, for example, I was reading a book recently on the Quran, the textual history of the Quran, and there seems to be evidence in the Quran that some of the earliest manuscripts, there was a very concerted effort to uh consolidate the text and then destroy any alternative texts, alternative versions of the Quran. Okay, now not not we're not talking about necessarily massive differences here, but that's not the kind of situation we have with the New Testament. We have no evidence of Say a Christian group here trying to destroy all other versions of the New Testament, right? Right. Well, we have, for example, somebody like Marcion in the second century who we know um, rejected the other gospels except for Luke, for example. Um, and what's amazing about that is that we know that he did that, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and we also know that he didn't succeed because we still have. Matthew, Mark, and John, <laughs> right? right? So even those cases where we know yeah. people were kind of out to, to change the Bible in, in one way or another, we, we often have very clear evidence of, of them doing so. And more importantly, we have evidence that they failed to succeed, right? And part of that is simply because of the enormous spread of Christianity early on. It would have been impossible for somebody in Italy Let's say Rome to change all the manuscripts of, say, Mark's Gospel that are being read in Alexandria, Egypt, and in Palestine, in Syria, and as far away as places like Gaul, right, in France. It's just it just can't happen. So the possibility of some kind of large-scale conspiracy like that is is, is not sustainable, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I actually had a man. I had two thoughts to what you just said, and now they both just escaped me. <laughs> uh, can, can you say? Can you say a piece of what you just said? I'm, I'm gonna say one of them. Well,
0: just this just this aspect of, of because the New Testament copy spread so quickly around. Oh yeah, around the ancient world, it, it basically rules out the pot, and there was no central structure. Right, it's not like right. there was a pope in the second century who was able to control everybody else's copies. So the possibility that the original text could have been edited out, let's say, or changed irrevocably or irredeemably is, is extremely unlikely.
1: Right. And actually one of the, one of the thoughts that I had was, and we're going to get to some of the specifics about the amount of manuscripts and fragments that we have of new testament scripture from these various different places and various different languages but one of the things that that caught me as a intellectual skeptic at the time when i was examining this stuff is i said you know if jesus wasn't real if jesus didn't live and he didn't die and rise from the dead why did it get copied so much like mm. so frequently over mm. such a long period of time mm. you know when i was an unlearned believer as, as an atheist you know it's easy to say okay well somebody who was really powerful made up these books and and wrote it and shared it and it right. went viral in the right. first few centuries or however right you know that right. as an unlearned skeptic that's right. how i was thinking and when i read the When I look on the internet, that's how it seems like a lot of people are thinking as well. But when you become more educated on the historicity of Judaism and the Christian faith, Mm -hmm. one of the things that caught me is if, if this didn't happen, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead why like for what reason did this get copied so much and so early on i think of a quick example before we move on i go if we look on the news like right now as of march 2020 the thing that's all over the news is coronavirus right and next month, six months later, it might be something in the news, right? Maybe something with a superstar. That might be what's in the news all week. Right. Right. If something is a really, really, really big story, even if it's not completely true, mm-hmm. at most it'll be in the news every day for, I don't know what, two weeks. And that's and that's a gigantic story. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you're listening to this, there's one story being reported on virtually every news outlet that you can set your eyes on for what for for a hundred years and they keep reporting on it like they keep reporting they're keeping it in the public's view Mm -hmm. and I use that as an analogy I know it's not a perfect one but I'm trying to get the listeners to understand that in the first few centuries or even in the first you know 10 11 12 centuries the amount of copies Mm -hmm. that have been copied and copied over and over again in so many different languages for me and then it's it's going from from Israel and Turkey all the way to Italy and Africa and so many it's such right. it's such it's such a large right. it's such a large scope so i'm just right. saying that to say if this didn't happen why was it being copied so much by so many different people all of these people wasn't walking with jesus all of these people didn't right. know paul paul personally right. you know i think right. that's just an unreasonable Right. No, I
0: think I think even good um, non-believing scholars will will recognize that the the New Testament writers and, and from their perspective they'll say whether they were right or wrong, absolutely believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. Right. right.
1: That right. if they're a
0: non-believing scholar, they have to go on to explain why they were wrong or wh- how they came to that belief. Order. But they'll usually admit. I think the best ones will admit that absolutely mm-hmm. the f- the first followers of Jesus believed he was risen from the dead, and then that yeah that continued to be believed on and on and on right yeah yeah
1: so i have a question let's talk about something that i probably would correct if, if i were to do the my presentation on historic reliability of the new testament one of the yes. things one of the things that i presented is that scholars have often said that we have around or about 5800 copies of the original greek original yeah. greek right yeah. so yeah. so it varies as far as whether if it's a manuscript or just a fragment, but in total yeah. it's around 5,800. You know, yeah. my understanding is you might say that 5,300 might be a better number, but 5,100 mm-hmm. is an even safer estimate. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate yeah. on why?
0: Yeah, sure. So if, if, if listeners are worried at all about being wrong, the safe thing to say is just say more than 5,000. <laughs> <Right? laughs> so then you're, then you're covered. Good. Uh, I think, I think there's a couple things to say about this though. One of the reasons why I've been guilty of this myself. So there's a whole chapter in the book about how many Greek manuscripts do we have. And I get cited in that chapter in a footnote, if you read it carefully for, for doing this wrong. So I'm guilty as charged here as well. Um, I think the temptation always is we want to have the most, right? So we want the biggest number because it sounds more dramatic. Right. And so the first thing I can say is in our apologetics, we do want to be careful. We want to be accurate and faithful and we do want to we want to reach people with the truth but we need to be careful that we're not just using whatever piece of data sounds most dramatic right the most dramatic piece of data is not always the true one right so we want to be a little bit careful in our apologetics on that front but then in terms of why why it's probably not safe to say 5800 or something close to that is because the official catalog of new testament manuscripts has been kept for a long long time now and manuscripts are spread all over the world. Most of them are in in libraries and institutions in Europe, but they're spread all over and they can be hard to keep track of. Uh, They can move, they can sometimes move within a library to move to a different department, they get recataloged, renumbered, and so they can get lost or they can can get lost in something like a fire, okay? Um, In other cases though, what's happened is you have part of a manuscript in library A and the other part of that same manuscript in library. Ah. Yeah. And they're cataloged at different times and they get to the official cataloger of New Testament manuscripts at different times, and they don't realize at the time that they're the same one. And so same they give them one. separate wow. numbers. So they so you count one manuscript twice. Okay. So things like that can happen. And when you're dealing with five thousand of these and they're spread out all over the world in places like, you know, Russia, Italy, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere, it's a lot to keep track of. So You know, I don't want to be critical of the people that keep track of them. I'm enormously thankful for what they do, but it does mean that over time mistakes can creep into the the catalog. And so what Jacob Peterson does in his chapter in the book is he goes through and he catalogs uh, or or goes through some of these examples of manuscripts that have been counted twice or wrongly counted or whatnot. And so when it comes to some of our earliest manuscripts, he shaves off, I forget how many uh, 50 or more or something from, from the total number. Yeah. And that's kind of extrapolating from there. He says, you know, probably 5,300 is, is a safer estimate. But then the last thing I would say about this is something I always remind my students. And that is don't fall into the trap of thinking that more manuscripts is necessarily better. Okay. Hmm. Don't necessarily need more bad manuscripts. And in fact, all you really need is a few really good manuscripts to have a good text, right? So at one level, when it comes to the question of arriving at the original text, do I care if we find another 14th century manuscript that looks like all our other 14th century manuscripts? Hmm, right. At one that's... level, yeah, of course I do, right? I'm a New Testament scholar, I'm a Christian, and I just, and I like history. So for all those reasons and more, I'm thrilled when we find a new manuscript or catalog a new one.
1: Yeah, that's not heavily but, impacting what we're it's, doing, no. But
0: it's not like, it's not like oh, yeah. now my faith is secure. Right, right. See, and I think that's important for people to remember. The fact that we have 53 instead of 58, does that make the New Testament less reliable textually? And the answer is right. no, it doesn't. Right, right. And, and the reason is because we have such good early manuscripts and we've had them for so long. And frankly, even if we didn't have those, we would still have a very good text. Uh, if you go back and look at like, an edition like Erasmus's, the very first published Greek New Testament in 1516, and compare it to the most recent Greek New Testament published in the first 18 verses of John 18, they disagree in zero places. And yet they're separated by 500 years, you see. So um, while I certainly think we've we've discovered better manuscripts since the 1500s, um, and our text is better as a result, Erasmus had overall a very good text of the New Testament in 15, 16. Does, does that make sense? Wow. Yeah, yeah. He had. He had. So The way I say to my students is, we have more than what we need to, to trust the text of the New Testament. We have we have an, a wealth and abundance of evidence for it, and and the reality is statistically, give me one good manuscript and my faith is fine, right? Mm-hmm. And I just so happens that I have dozens and dozens of very good manuscripts, right? So the only problem is that they differ enough that it makes a lot of work for me as a professional, <laughs> right. a professional text critic right Right? (laughs) but in terms of in terms of having a a text that's good enough to establish my faith on you know let me pick my manuscript and i'll be fine wow even if if i only have to have one so
1: that's that's really dope now question is the is the adjustment and the recommendation to stop saying that it's over or around ten thousand latin manuscripts is that for the same reason is that why that number is is recommended to be added
0: yeah it's just it's just i don't know that number i think I forget who goes back to maybe Bruce Metzger or somebody. And uh, it's a kind of, it's a kind of number that a scholar just kind of throws out and says, you know, we seem to have, and he, and somebody who spent time with manuscripts and he's saying, man, we must have tens of thousands of these or something. And it gets picked up and then becomes this kind of concrete number as if we have exactly 10,000. Right? right. And uh, looking at more, more up to date, more detailed catalogs of Latin manuscripts, that's 10,000 is probably an exaggeration. It's still a lot. Okay it's still a lot uh, it's still thousands of them and uh, and that's important and valuable, but it's probably not ten
1: now sometimes later manuscripts can be better than an older one right And, and what I mean by that for those who are listening you know you perfectly you're following the conversation but let's say we might have a manuscript of one of our sacred biblical texts from say AD 400 okay that's closer to when it actually was written than say uh ad 1100 or something just for example but you say that sometimes a later manuscript can be better than an older one can you explain that scenario
0: yeah sure just think about something like um think about something like the declaration of independence okay 1776 imagine if um somebody was printing that okay printing a copy of it in 1777 they were a lousy printer
1: so (laughs) they made they made
0: a bunch of mistakes right now right. then, imagine somebody else that same year publish or print, reprinting a good one. And then me in 2020, imagine me making a copy of the good one, right? If I do a good job copying the good one, even though my resulting copy will be from 2020, right? Hundreds of years after uh, it will end up being a better copy of the text. Uh, It'll be a better copy than the text that was done in 1777 because it was done poorly. So what we're trying to say is what really matters most is not so much the date of the parchment and the ink. What matters is the date of the text that's in the parchment and it's copied with ink. So when that happens, like I, I worked on some manuscripts in my dissertation that were from the 11th to the 15th and some, in one case, the 16th century. And because of some, some, some other data that we have some other manuscripts that i won't get into we can we can date that 15th century text in those manuscripts to the 7th century Mm. In many cases word by word yeah so that's a case where the parchment is from the 15th century but we know from other manuscript evidence that the text it preserves goes back at least to the 7th century now that's 700 years okay 700 years separates those and yet the texts are remarkably similar uh, so much so that we can identify them as extremely closely related. So what that tells us is um, what we want to do is ask the question, not just how old is the parchment, that has relevance, but also how old is the text uh-huh. the parchment, yeah. And so it doesn't mean that all old older manuscripts are better, uh, or excuse me, all younger manuscripts are better, but some of them can be better than even
1: older manuscripts yeah that's that's a great example i want to stay right in this vein but move away from the new testament and go towards some classical literature so Mm -hmm. oftentimes when we're talking about this you know and Again, myself included, and I'm sure you've done this as well, yep. you know, after yep. we talk about, you yep. know, or, or not after, while we're discussing all of the manuscripts and things that we have, we'll talk about certain things that you'll probably certainly hear about in college courses, in elementary yep. school, in yes. junior high, you got to do an essay on, on Plato, you hear about Plato, you hear about Caesar's Gallic Wars, even if you don't yep. remember it when you get older, you still heard about this, and no one is doubting what Gallic Wars says. Yeah. So oftentimes, and again, myself included, I'll go, well, we have, again, we just heard Dr. Peter Gurry say why 5,800 isn't a good number, you know, but the argument might go something like, well, for the New Testament, we have around 5,800 manuscripts and or fragments of the, in the original Greek language alone. But for somebody like Caesar's Gallic Wars, we might have only 10 and no one doubts that if you're going to doubt the new Testament, you shouldn't even be thinking about Gallic Wars. Now we can still make that again, we should qualify it responsibly, but if you still want to make that argument, we can still do that, but we should do that more accurately, right? Sometimes when we are making this type of presentation or making this type of argument, we've already talked about how we can overstate what we have for scripture but sometimes we don't give classical literature enough credit
0: yeah and i think this is just a general principle right is that we should always as christians be fair to the views that we don't hold and fair to 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 the data as much as we can be and so what tends to happen is people find um, the most up-to-date number they can for the new testament manuscripts uh, and then, but but they find a number of manuscripts on classical works in F.F. In F. Bruce, for example, from the 1940s, and so they still use his numbers. Well, you know, we've, we've discovered and cataloged new manuscripts of classical works, just like we have for the New Testament, so those numbers haven't stayed static since the 1940s, so what we want to do is try to be fair as, as much as we can and say, all let right, right, let's, let's try to pick a good, reliable number for the New Testament and Pick a good reliable number for class the classical works that we're comparing with. And then I think the other thing to keep in mind is um, it's not a competition. It's not a it's not a winner take all competition with classical literature. It's not like in order for the New Testament to be textually reliable, classical works have to be not as textually <laughs> reliable, right? right? I mean if if for example Plato's Republic has a better textual foundation than the new testament that doesn't make plato's republic inspired scripture see? right and right. so so i think where the argument does have value is for people who are really skeptical and want to want to be unfair to the new testament side of things and say well because there are variants there you can't trust it and that's where we wanted to say well you know let's be reasonable about this every so much of what we know about the ancient world we get through written documents and those documents have been hand copied, and they have variants in them too, and in many cases, the number of manuscripts are far less, and they're far later from the writing, from the time of the writing of the original document, so unless we want to be skeptical about all of the ancient world, let's not do, let's not treat the New Testament that way either, right, so let's, let's give the New Testament a fair shake, and I think for that, for that point, it's, it's a very useful argument still, and can be made, um, <laughs> So yeah, and and James Prothro does a great job, I think, in his chapter on on
1: that. Yeah, he did because he even specified some 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 of the numbers. Because in addition to everything that you just said, Peter, you know, even if you still want to demonstrate that we do have more of a. Textual foundation to examine for, for the New Testament and other stuff. You don't have to say Caesar Gallic Wars is 10, like the old number. Right. Yeah. You know, it's 251. That's a whole lot more than 10, but it's also a whole lot less than 5,000. Right. You no, know, so. If right. you do want to stress that we have more of the New Testament, we still don't have to undermine right. what the accurate, what right. the more accurate number for right. some of these classical literatures actually is.
0: And it's important to just keep in mind, again, the, the nature of how the comparison works, right? Because what we don't want to say is like, well, there have to be so many manuscripts before we can trust it. Because if we get in the comparison game, we do it wrong, we can end up pitting the New Testament again itself against itself, right? So the Gospels, we have... Over sixteen hundred manuscripts for the gospels. When it comes to Revelation, we're we're dealing with more of a couple hundred or so. Yeah. We're dealing with hundreds, not over a thousand. What well, does that mean the text of Revelation is right. less secure? Well, in some cases it presents its own issues for sure, right? But we just don't want to we just don't want to ever make this a bare numbers game, as if, you know, once I hit a thousand, now I can trust mm. the text. Because it's it's just it's that's not how text criticism works. We never just count up manuscripts and say well now that we have a thousand of them we have a good text no it's it's more about weighing the quality of manuscripts and so that's again that's why i often like to stress to people it's not so much about how many manuscripts do i have and more the more the better it's more the quality of manuscripts i'm concerned about and in that case the better the better <laughs> right I say it that way. man
1: right. i could <laughs> man i could talk to you for Three hours about each of these things, but I'm trying to just touch on each <laughs> yeah. one in, in the time that we have yeah, together. Sure. So I'll kind of just ease on to how we go about dating some yes. of our manuscripts. What what are some yeah, things? What, what are some things that we can qualify better? What are some mistakes that when it when it comes to that?
0: Yeah, so I think the the simplest thing on that is just be careful that you're not giving a, an exact date. You don't want to date something like P fifty two to to eighty one twenty five, right? Okay? because we don't know that it was copied in AD 125. Um, what we do is we look at the style of handwriting and we compare it to other handwriting of the time. And then we try quick. to put it in the flow. I'm sorry, yeah.
1: Peter. I'm yeah. sorry, Peter. For those who, because I know everybody didn't stop and listen to my other video. I don't want people who were disobedient. I'm going to do y'all a favor. I'm going to explain this real quick before he explains <laughs> that. P-52 is the oldest oh, yeah. copy of a fragment that we have of... Of New Testament scripture. All right, it's about the size of a credit card. You know, it's really small and it's a fragment of John's gospel. Historically, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, back in the day, I I forget the name of the scholar, it may have been C.H. Roberts. I'm I'm forgetting right now, but I think he said that it was probably written around the first half of the second century. Didn't really date. The more common number, as of late has been AD 125 to AD 130 which yeah. would be really close yeah. if you want to think about anything of ancient times for us to have a fragment that's that old now i'm sorry for cutting you off no, but i wanted to lay that yeah, no, i wanted to explain that as you explain can you yeah yeah sorry pick up where I-
0: Yes, thank you. That's very helpful. So now you have that context. Okay, yes. So P52 is considered by most to be the earliest or one of the earliest New Testament manuscripts. And I think what happens is somebody can somebody like a CH Roberts can say, "Hey, this dates to the first half of the second century." Well, if you if you put a dot right in the middle of the first half of the first century, second century, guess what you have? AD 125. And and so I think what happens is scholars hopefully hopefully knowing knowing how paleography works knowing how this dating works they just say 125 and they they hope that their readers know give or take 25 years on either side does that make sense yeah and then but what then what happens is that can trickle down into more popular literature and people start to think no it means exactly 125 right and the reason this is important is because when we date these manuscripts we're dating it based on the handwriting and that always gives us a range of at least fifty years, and in some cases, it's better to say a hundred years. Does that make sense? Yeah. Though so P fifty two is still very early, still, still a great, you know, important manuscript, an important copy, but it's probably safer to say it's second century, and we don't need to be more specific than that. Um, so I think again, the temptation—it's the same one we face with a number of manuscripts. It's like when we're in apologetics, we want to do—we want to have the best argument, and we want it to be the most dramatic it can possibly be. Right. So if we say 125, then we can say, you know, that's close to the lifetime of John. Right. Uh, whereas if it's 175, it's like, well, that seems farther away. The reality is, when you deal with the ancient world, either one of those is remarkably close.
1: <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> remarkably seen, I know, close. I know in
0: our on our Twitter world, you know, a hundred years seems like
1: preach man you know, teach us yeah,
0: it sounds like <laughs> a millennia you know it's like well if it didn't happen 2 seconds ago it must be who knows you know right. it's like all those for skeptics and when we're dealing with with the ancient world uh, having a manuscript within even a 100 years of its writing is fantastic man you know, most ancient works don't have anything close to that so um, yeah i don't know sometimes i feel like we don't need to be greedy <laughs> the, the lord has given us plenty of evidence Um, And this is where I think it's helpful, to, to, especially for apologists, it's helpful to remember that the people who are skeptical, and particularly people who do not want the scriptures to be true, um, will find anything they can, any reason they can to doubt it, right? So I always take people to the the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And the the rich man in the afterlife um, wants Lazarus to go tell his brothers. And... And he is told by Abraham, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe those, they won't believe somebody who comes back from the dead. Ooh. So when you hear atheists say things like, well, you know, they're in a debate. They say something like, well, if, this, if the ceiling opened and God spoke to me oddly, then I would believe. I just want to say, no, you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Because the Bible tells me that if someone even rose from the dead to come tell come you on. Come that, on. that the truth is true, right. you still wouldn't believe it because the problem, is, the problem is not a lack of information, right? And so I think that's important to remember in our apologetics, having right information is important because we're Christians and we believe the truth matters and we want to be responsible, right? And we believe that apologetics has a a God-ordained role uh, and that God can use it to help lead people to Christ for sure. But at the end of the day, nobody is a non-believer because of lack of information, right? And so just giving them more information or more dramatic information, that's, that's not it. That's not the problem for them. The problem is a heart issue, right? It's a million, so yeah. Just throw that in there.
1: <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. That that that's great stuff. That's great stuff. Now, I want to make sure I get to at least two things. Uh, I love the way the conversation is flowing, but before we move on, though, can you elaborate again? I know you sort of touched on it, but can you touched on um, paleography mm-hmm. and why and why that is sometimes a difficult way to yeah. date our Manuscripts, and this is going back to yeah. why we want to have a good range when we're saying this is yeah. stated, probably.
0: Yeah, so essentially, the way it works is you what paleographers are doing, a paleography is the study of, of old writing, okay. Paleography, uh, and it's done for everything from you know old Greek handwriting, old Latin handwriting to to Renaissance, Renaissance materials, and even all the way up to the handwriting of George Washington, right? Okay, so paleography is done for all kinds of historical work um when it comes to greek paleography what we're usually trying to 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 deal with is the span of a scribe's lifetime and the idea is that um you can expect a shift in handwriting to happen over the course of 50 to 100 years because that's roughly a generation okay or two and that's the amount of time it takes for handwriting to shift right because presumably a guy writes in the same handwriting style for his whole life And so it doesn't change until after him. Okay. So that's why they're usually dealing in kind of 50 to 100 year increments when they're dating these things. And they're trying to take a manuscript and kind of put it in the general flow of development that they can observe in the style of handwriting. So it's it's not an exact science. There are other ways of doing it now that are interesting, like um, carbon 14 dating and and stuff like that. And those have their own hurdles to overcome as well. But um, still, I think the most reliable way to date manuscripts by far is, is handwriting style.
1: Now, you just in the course of conversation, you mentioned some of the things that we might know about early copyists of text, of Mm -hmm. early copyists of the text. Mm -hmm. But can we highlight that just a little bit? What are some of the things that we know about the different people and types of people who are actually doing this copying before the printing press?
0: Yeah, okay. So it's a pretty broad range because printing press is, you know, 1500 so years after the original documents and what we do know it's pretty clear is that the later manuscripts are copied better than the early manuscripts. Okay. Um, Our later manuscripts tend to agree with within themselves at a much higher rate than our early manuscripts do within, within themselves. So that's, that's pretty good evidence that our earliest scribes are not as good as the later scribes, but I think it's, it's important to not overplay that and assume that means the early scribes are bad and later manuscripts are um, are, are good. I always use the example of LeBron James and Michael Jordan. Okay. So <clears throat> given that I am uh, a child of the nineties, it's clear to me that Michael Jordan is the better basketball player than LeBron James. Okay. All right. But <laughs> so go with me. But nobody would say that because Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James, therefore LeBron James is a bad basketball player. Are you right. with me? Even the diehard right. Jordan fans like myself, right. we, I would never say LeBron is right. a bad basketball player. But I think right. same thing with scribes, just because the earlier scribes are are in some ways worse than the later scribes does not mean that they're actually bad. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Right. Uh, any basketball team would be more than happy to have LeBron James on their team, even if he is worse than Michael Jordan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So, uh,
0: obviously. So, I think the early scribes, um, they sometimes aren't as careful, but they're still overall good. Uh, they make the kind of mistakes that all scribes make. Um, it does seem to be that some, something in the earliest period that scribes are, uh, how would I say it, less uncomfortable with changing the text. Uh, there may be some evidence for that. I'm somewhat skeptical about that in terms of in terms of the actual statistics but um, it does seem that some of the most significant variants do arise early on Um, and there's there's various explanations for why that might be but I think overall the early scribes are still quite good and they're the reason why as a whole the New Testament tradition is very well copied Um, it starts on a good foundation so there's been a number of studies that have come out in the last few years in fact uh, documenting this in some detail so Zach Cole does the chapter on this in, in the book, and, and he's quite familiar with this area.
1: Now, what about the New Testament canon in general, the 27 books that are inspired by God in our New Testament canon? What, what can you yeah. tell us about the New Testament canon?
0: Well, okay, that's a second podcast because that's a topic all its own. <laughs> yes, it is. It really is. But, it really is. But we'll, we'll say one thing about it in terms of, of manuscripts, and that is, People are sometimes surprised when they discover that our earliest and most important, so some of our earliest and most important New Testament manuscripts include books that are not in our New Testament.
1: Okay? Right. That's, so, like, that's what I was getting.
0: At. Yeah, exactly. So Codex Sinaiticus, for example, is one of our most important copies of the New Testament and includes the Old Testament as well. But people are often surprised when they find out that it's the most important or one of the most important, and then they find out that it also these has other this,
1: books are in yeah, there.
0: Yeah, so it has this book called the Didache, for example. Okay, or excuse me, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. Oh man, I'm blanking now. Sorry, folks, will have to look it up. I'm blanking in the moment, but it has it has books that are not in our New Testament canon. And so one of the questions is, does that mean whoever put this manuscript together thought that these books were in the New Testament? And I think the best answer really is no. That instead, what, we, what, what that shows is that um, to make a book in the ancient world, especially one like this, like Codex Sinaiticus, which is huge and elaborate and very well done, was a massive undertaking, it was very expensive, and would take a long time. So if you're making something that big and you have other other books that you value a lot, even if you don't think that they're scripture, you may still well include them in this book, Right um it's not unlike it's a little bit different but it's not unlike today you if you picked up a bible you know even a good protestant bible from a bookstore you'd find things in there that aren't the bible right you might find introductions by the translator uh if it's a study bible you'd find a whole lot of study study notes um you might find introductions to each individual book and we don't think those things are scripture but they're still in the within the with covers of our Bibles. I
1: I love that. I love that you use that ways. And that's actually encouraging because that's always the example that I, that I use, you know, yeah. I have, I have right. a study Bible, like you said, has an right. introduction, right. I have an apologetics study Bible. It has scripture, but it, it also has a bunch of different articles, right. you know, as a right. bunch of footnotes, all the right. footnotes aren't, right. aren't saying, Hey, you know, something about manuscripts. Some of them are describing certain things about scripture. It's, 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 given some additional exegesis. Right. And when I read that, I know that all of that stuff isn't scripture. But this right. is all important stuff. And I will use a lot of that stuff that's from right. time to time.
0: And I think what you said is, is valuable because um because that's exactly right. The reason why they are included alongside these biblical books is precisely because they are valuable, right? So the reason why your apologetic study bible has other stuff in it is precisely because it's valuable to you. Right. So I think it's clear that these Non-canonical books in something like Codex Sinaiticus are in there precisely because they're very valued, right? But that's not the same thing as saying that they're treated on par with the other books that they stand next to. Um, so, in in a chapter on this, John Mead goes through another set of evidence for the question of canon, which is what's called the canon lists, and he sh- right. he, sh- he shows how oftentimes these extra books that are included in our in our manuscripts don't show up in the canon lists, which are the most explicit resource we have for telling what they thought was the bible and what wasn't
1: and also and also in that same chapter he even points out that athanasius even specifies some of the things that we're saying right now you know and in festal letters you know athanasius actually even writes that some of these books are uh, are part of the canon canon some of them are to be read you know it's even specified
0: that's right and so so what you see developing is this kind of three tiered system of books that are canonical books that are clearly not canonical. And then this middle category of books that are not to be used for say doctrine or not to be read in church, but are still valuable. Um, And we have books like that too. Um, We have books that we think, man, this, this is a great Christian book. You should absolutely read it. That doesn't mean that we think we should base our doctrine on it. Right. Or read it in church. Right. Um, So, yeah.
1: Now I'm going to ask you about this only because it, You know, it comes up sometimes. I've personally, maybe because since, you know, I started, you know, taking studies seriously and started taking the study of the word of God seriously, people stopped making this argument. But I'm going to the argument that once upon a time, people would say that you can make up most of the Bible or all of the New Testament or something like that just from church father. Uh, writings and things yeah. like that in, in case yeah. there now I have I've personally in my studies yeah only time I've ever heard that or seen that come up was someone saying that they don't see any evidence of yeah. it you know and then yes. I looked it up yeah. myself and I can't find any evidence yeah. of it but can you give us some yeah. history or whatever you know about that
0: yeah so there's a there's a chapter on the book on that as well so I'll to speak from memory because I didn't write the chapter <laughs> but I'll do my best uh if you want the details you have to go to that chapter but you see get that, the book. It's a great book, book, y'all. There you go. Get right? the book. Um, the, you'll see this, this point made in, in, in otherwise reputable scholars like Bart Ehrman and, and Bruce Metzger just talk about this. So, you know, it goes something like, even if we didn't have any manuscripts, we could reconstruct the New Testament from the Church Fathers citations because there's right. so many of them. Now, the, tr- the grain of truth in this is there are a lot of citations from the Church Fathers, okay? Uh, in the early uh, centuries of the church especially starting say the third and fourth um, where people like you know Augustine and Athanasius and Jerome and and before them Origen are writing detailed commentaries on the Bible and writing other books where they're quoting from the Bible all the time so there are a lot of these citations from the church fathers but it's just not true that we can reconstruct the New Testament from them Um, and logically it doesn't really even make sense because if you didn't Already know what the New Testament was, you'd never be able to put it all together from their citations, right? I mean, you'd have a citation. It's not like they told you the references, right? <laughs> they don't. Right. There's no chapter and verse numbers yet, so they're not like. And John three sixteen says, and then later they say in John three seventeen, like so. You'd never. How would you ever know what order to put? Like, there's just there's a whole bunch of problems with it. Um, so don't Thank use you. it. The grain, <laughs> of, the, the grain of truth in it is that we do have a lot of citations, okay? But they're right. not enough to reconstruct
1: the New Testament or anything like that. So no but i i love the point that you that you just made i, I that's exactly what i was just yeah. going to say so i love that you said that now b- before i let you go before i let you go if if you would point out some of the most important things that Christian teachers have gotten wrong or have overstayed or there's some things that we can qualify better, you know, what would it be? And maybe it's something that we've already discussed. Maybe it's something that we haven't yet. Maybe it's something that you would like to highlight. But if what yeah. would you say are some of the most important things?
0: Yeah. I think the, the definitely the one that, that I have seen most often and one of the ones that was a major impetus for the writing of the book is the, is the comparison between classical literature and the New Testament. That one comes up a lot. Okay. and then the other one is kind of the number of variants because that involves statistics people kind of do some crazy funky things with the statistics and put it in the wrong context or just get something out of whack and it ends up being totally mangled in terms of uh, either the number of variants or how many variants per manuscript there are or things like that so those those ones um, happen a lot I, and I, would, I think what I would just say to people is be aware that a lot of older apologetics works are out of date um, because text criticism is a pretty technical field and it's, it can be hard to keep up with if you're not if you're not in it and so this it's not necessarily a slam on older works it's just to say they are older and this happens to be a, a an area where you know this is this is not like this is not like the problem of evil Do you know what I, okay
1: <laughs> right like right yes,
0: people continue to write on the problem of evil and will forever probably but when it comes to the problem of evil, like people have thought about it and written about it for a long time. Yeah. The basic fundamental problem hasn't changed. at least to its kind of logical form, right? It goes all the way back to ancient times. So that's not the kind of thing that's like outdated in the same way that text criticism is. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Text criticism by its very nature, we're, we're discovering new manuscripts all the time. Uh, we're cataloging them. We're studying them in, in greater detail. We're developing new methods to study them and to do textual criticism. The um, same as happening in the classical world. They're discovering new manuscripts, and so it's, it's just an easy kind of thing where in the span of 50 years, yeah, I mean, a book written 50 years ago is going to be out of date, and, and frankly, a book written 15 years ago is probably going to be out of date, especially if it's not written by a, a specialist in the field. So that was, that was really our hope for the book. was. It, I hope people don't take the book as like us trying to shame apologists. That really wasn't our aim. Um, it's just that we, re- I mean, because we're in this field, we know that it's terrible, right. Right. And so we really wanted it to be a, a tool to help folks like you, who are doing this. Um, and in the process, and partly to kind of get your all's attention, we, we had to point out some of the mistakes along <laughs> the way, if, if that's okay. Yeah, right. So, you know, if y'all could be nice to us, realize <laughs> that we're trying to help. Okay.
1: But but also, you know, with with the different mm-hmm. authors that participated in the book, this book is actually self-corrective a lot of yeah. times. It's, uh, a lot of the things that the authors are writing, some of that stuff is self-corrective. You know, like right. you said, you know, right. some of the stuff, it points out that, you know, it's correcting some things that you, that you, that you have said, but other authors as well.
0: There were, there were a number of chapters that I learned quite a bit from myself and I'm, I'm, you know, I did my PhD in this field. So the Jacob Peterson's, for example, that was, you know, I learned a ton from that and uh, will not make the mistake I made before now in light of his chapter. So people shouldn't necessarily feel, feel bad. Um, But I think what I'm, what I've been really encouraged by is a number of people like you who've read the book or, or seen it and have been willing to correct themselves and say, you know what? I've gotten it wrong and this book is going to help me get it right. And I just want to say that's, that's fantastic. Like that's why we, that's why we put it together was to help. So we're thrilled to hear that.
1: Yeah. Sean McDowell. I'm not sure if you saw his article on his website. He has, he has a wonderful article on the book, but Yes, if you are listening to this, especially those who are watching and you can see the cover, this is a great book. And if you take the study of New Testament textual criticism seriously, this is a must have. This is a must have. You know, uh, there are a lot of books that you can get. And really, I recommend that you get those, too. You know, but this is a great study tool. Okay. It has a lot of sources, a lot of ways for you to check and double check things and you know, it, I found it to be massively a, a blessing, you know. Uh you know, I read it before I contacted you about interviewing about interviewing and it's it's just a blessing, man. It really is. Yeah. It's, it,
0: good. And that's what that's what we wanted, right? Um I, I always tell my students, not everybody needs to be a text critic. Um, but the church needs some good text critics and those of us that are need to do our job the best we can to help serve everybody else i'm not i can't do your job and i shouldn't try this is kind of the body metaphor right hmm. uh the body is actually the, the strongest when i'm doing my role right. best, and then you're doing your different role the best and we're, we're helping each other and strengthening each other so this is just a way for for us to do that um you know text terms is not in my opinion the most important thing that the church needs but it is one thing it needs it happens to be the one thing God has, has gifted me to do. So I'm going to try to do it the best I can. So, yeah.
1: All right. Well, is it anything that you would like to leave us with? Any, uh, anything that you're working on? Any new books that you're working on? Any, I know you had a conference that passed recently. Is it yep. any conferences that you're putting on? Anything that yeah. you want to shout out that you want people sure. to be aware of?
0: Sure. Um, people, if they're interested in knowing more about the Texan Canon Institute, could go to ps.edu slash TCI. If you're an MDiv student, you might be interested in our um, fellowship, which is a, a generous scholarship for a THM program. If you're interested in doing, especially if you're doing doc, interested in doctoral work in text criticism, for example, um, so you can go there and find out. Yep, we just had the sacred words conference uh, last month and had a great turnout for that. And you can go to that same website in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to post the video from that conference as well. So yeah, those be the two things.
1: Awesome. So again, everybody, the book is Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. Uh, one of the authors and editors is Dr. Peter Gurry, and it is certainly worth the investment and hope prayerfully and hopefully this interview, this conversation has been a blessing to you as well. And as we always say, as we end on the show Is he a real one? Yes, he is. And the he that we talking about is Jesus, y'all. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much,
0: Major.